0: the Uvalde police response, gun control in Canada, and US rockets to Ukraine. I'm Adam Bearn and this is The Square Circle. Hello and welcome to The Square Circle. I'm your host, Adam Bearn. Joining us this week, we have conservative writer and editor, Brian McNichol. Brian, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. And we also have libertarian Dan Mitchell of the Center for Freedom Freedom and Prosperity. Hi, Dan. Hello, Adam. And uh, rounding out the panel this week, progressive political reporter, James Rosen. Hello again, James.
1: Hi, Adam. Good to see you.
0: Well, let's get right to it, folks. In the aftermath of the Uvalde school massacre, the focus is turning to the police response, or perhaps the lack thereof, to the shooting. Here's coverage from ABC News. This morning, new video obtained by ABC News
1: raising questions about law enforcement's response to the deadly shooting at Robb Elementary School. Guy with a rifle. Police seen rescuing children after breaking a window, then pulling them out.
2: Somebody jumped out the window.
1: Oh, the kids. kids. They're getting the kids out. The footage showing part of what took place outside the building. During those 77 minutes, the gunman went on a rampage inside. Texas authorities say the school district police chief wrongly believed the situation was no longer an active shooter and had ordered tactical teams not to enter the classroom, while the children desperately called 911 for help. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. The rampage finally stopping when sources say federal agents decided to go in and fatally shoot the gunman. Now the
0: Justice Department is reviewing law enforcement's response. So, Dan Mitchell, what does the response by the police to this shooting tell us about the realities of trying to stop someone with an assault weapon who's determined to kill as many people as he can in as short a period of time as possible?
3: The training that uh, at least some of the cops uh, had in Uvalde uh, and that you have nationwide is that you're supposed to immediately engage the shooter. That's how you save the lives of children. Now, I can only imagine if I was a cop how how frightening it would be to rush into a situation like that, especially where the guy might be better armed than you. Uh, But that being said, they took the badge because that's part of their job. And, and, you know, if any of them, every one of them who failed to do their job uh, should lose their pension, lose their job, be out of policing entirely, uh, the role of cops is in these one in a million situations. They have to put their lives on the line for innocent people, and they, they failed to do that. and That's unforgivable. I mean, when we first heard about this story, we thought, well, you know, maybe the guy was barricaded in there by himself, and he had... Uh, you know, already killed the kids. But apparently he was still killing kids while 19 cops were mingling in the hallway.
0: James Rosen, Dan makes the point that perhaps police officers are afraid because the kinds of weapons that these shooters can pick up are so deadly. You know,
1: I agree with what Daniel said. Um, I mean, not only were the police officers mingling outside, they were preventing, uh, you know, uh, understandably hysterical parents from getting in according to reports at least some parents wanted to go in um i would like to think uh if i was a parent um obviously i'd be terrified but uh i wouldn't I, I would make the cops shoot me if i saw cops um um just standing outside and i understood the situation i mean there were so many 911 calls these kids were calling 911 and i'm sure some of them were calling their parents i mean the parents knew what was going on and you know, one of this this may seem mean, but I think it's true, which is there have been you know a couple dozen in recent years, a couple dozen cases of police uh, around the country shooting um, unarmed um, uh, people. Uh, some of them who were fleeing, so some of them were shot in the back. Many of them were people of color. So that's a that kind of indicates when uh, when they're not afraid, uh, they're 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 trigger happy and. I, uh one comparison i had was to 911 and and you know it's been what 21 years but i think we all remember the heroism of the firefighters who uh who kept going back again and again into that building uh, that burning building and uh some of them never came out they knew what they were going into and uh but they were trained and they were courageous and it wasn't just one firefighter it wasn't just a dozen firefighters. It was many, many firefighters did that. I don't recall any reports of a single firefighter on that day uh, refusing to enter those buildings, even though it was a death trap. It was more of a death trap, for sure, at least for some of the firefighters, than that school was. So this is this was just pure cowardice. And I saw a brief interview with, uh, I can't pronounce his name, but the, the chief who some reports say he's cooperating with investigators. Some reports say he's not cooperating with investigators. and he did not look like um, he did not look like the kind of fellow I would want to be police chief guarding uh, my kid's school. Let's just say that.
0: And that chief has just been sworn on to Uvalde's city council, I believe. Uh, and tragically, James, I believe that uh, just to further your point. It wasn't only students calling, uh, but the, one of the teachers who was killed called her husband a school police officer. We came to the scene and was denied entry. Brian McNicholas, our conservative on our panel tonight, what we often hear from conservatives, and I, I made this point last week, was the argument that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and that we, just seems... Which is what
4: eventually happened here.
0: But it's, um, it, but
4: does this show that that's far from guaranteed? Well, I mean, you know, you, the, the, as Dan said, you know, the cops have to do their jobs. I mean, you assume that you're paying them and you make them the prince of the city, and let them park wherever they want and, you know, free coffee all over town and all that stuff. I mean, you know, generally cops are treated good by the citizens because they know that, you know, when it's time to run in that building, these are the people we have to do that for us. And they didn't do it. They didn't measure up. The other thing is um, if you you know, the, the, the other side is talking about, you got to stop these weapons of war, these AR-15s, get them out of people's hands. But you know, this guy was in this room. From my understanding, seventy-eight minutes, and he killed nineteen people. Now, seventy-eight minutes. I mean, that's a, you know, that's about what four, a little more than four minutes per person. So there's not a gun in the world that's that slow, right? So the speed with which the gun shoots bullets is immaterial to this. Any gun that that he could have had would have been adequate to do what he's trying to do because. He had forever to do it because no one went
0: in against. Uh, also this week, America's neighbors to the north, Canada, are reacting to the Ovalde shooting by proposing gun control measures of their own. Here's CBC News with the story.
2: For the Liberals, today's bill is an election promise fulfilled.
0: As we see gun violence continue to rise,
3: it is our duty to keep taking action.
2: The legislation would increase penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking, Introduce a red flag law so individuals considered a threat to themselves or others surrender firearms to police and implement a national freeze on the sale, importation and transfer of handguns.
1: We made a commitment to Canadians that we were going to take real concrete steps to strengthen gun control.
2: But this Edmonton gun store owner says the handgun freeze goes too far and will affect his livelihood.
3: That's about 40 to 60% of my business.
2: Guns rights groups are also concerned that legal gun owners are being unfairly punished.
1: You're assuming that um, stopping the the legitimate lawful use of the handgun sports in some way is gonna reduce crime and violence because every credible expert on this topic knows it's not.
0: Brian McNichol, what do you make of these new Canadian measures? Do they have a lesson for the US there?
4: well i mean i you know they can do things in canada that you can't do here i mean they have the the they have the charter the charter of rights and and what firearm possession is not in there uh free speech is not in there most of our bill of rights is not in there so and that's their basic guarantor of, of freedoms in canada um, so things are unconstitutional you know, the things that are they're trying to do there or unconstitutional there. I'm not sure, um, I, you know, I guess when I first read this, I assumed that he had the votes, right? He's the, uh, if you're, you know, parla- parliamentary system, the, the head of the ruling party would seem to always kind of have, it'd be like the majority leader of the Senate, it doesn't come to the floor unless it has the votes. Um, but I'm not sure it does. I think that some of this, um, the, you know, the Canadians are, there's some pushback here, which is kind of, you know, surprising. I wouldn't have thought, thought of them capable of that, but it does look like they are. Um, interesting stuff going on in this country on this too. Um, uh, in the in U.S. Congress, uh, the Senate is working on legislation. Um, it is uh, Chris Murphy of Connecticut. When I first heard about this. It's like, Bishop uh, McConnell said, he goes, "Well, I've instructed uh, Senator Cornyn to work with Chris Murphy from Connecticut, uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona on gun control, or on, to see what we can do for a policy response here." And what they've come up with is uh they're talking about hardening schools which the president doesn't seem interested in um mental health funding and um there's some talk about the red flag laws now i think you know uh, you know there's there's really the you know to me the proper proper prop, uh, policy response is reform the cops in uvalde i mean that's where this failed uh the rest of the systems are but but the fact that you have nine senators working on legislation that attacks, you know, what people say are the other causes of this, you know, the real causes of this, mental illness and so forth, uh, and not trying to do a gun grab, uh, to me is somewhat remarkable. The House is passing, you know, down the route line leftist gun grabbing legislation that, that there's no way you'll get sixty votes in the Senate for it. So I think the the card in play here is the Senate resolution on our side. Um, in Canada, he, he can do some of this by, you know, I guess whatever their equivalent to executive order is, and one of those things he's trying to do is a handgun freeze. so no more buying, selling, everybody, whatever handgun you have, you just stuck with that one, so, you know, it's not the kind of thing you could do here, I don't understand, you know, what that gets at, but, you know, Canada's, they do things differently up there.
0: Sure. And just to expand on on your point, it seems like many members of Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau's party, wanted a handgun ban outright, yeah. but it's been scaled back to that handgun yeah. freeze yeah, that you're talking this, about.
4: Right. The, you're uh, right. That some of those proposals are already being whittled down because of yeah. the opposition.
0: Yeah. Daniel Mitchell, though, Canada is going to go ahead and ban assault rifles. And to Brian's earlier point, here in the US, it seems like uh, we're willing to deal with anything but the guns. Are we making a mistake by not following Canada's lead here?
3: I find it ironic and frankly, a little bit despicable that a man, Justin Trudeau, who's protected by people with guns, wants to make it harder for law-abiding Canadians to protect themselves with guns. Uh, that's typical political, uh, uh, You know, I don't, I don't even have words that I can use that would be proper uh, to describe my feelings for someone like that who's so hypocritical. Uh, When I think of what Trudeau is trying to do, I think of what happened in Australia where they had the so-called gun buyback. Well, criminologists say that that was only 20 percent effective. And not only that, there are more guns in Australia today than before the buyback. So I assume in Canada uh, we'll see similar very high levels of noncompliance. We'll see a lot of civil disobedience because people, frankly, don't trust governments and governments around the world for centuries have given us very good reasons not to trust them. Uh, Now, specifically what might happen uh, in the United States in terms of doing something similar, the most important thing to understand is that an assault weapon, quote unquote, is no different than any other type of gun. You could have more powerful rounds, less powerful rounds, uh, but they all fire one bullet per one pull of the trigger. Uh, So these politicians who are running around saying, we have to ban guns that look military or something like that. Well, would that stop one of these lunatics from simply getting one of the guns that doesn't look military? Uh, I I wish I had an answer for what happened. I wish there was some magic way because, frankly, I don't think mental health counseling and red flag laws and things like that are going to stop people who for the most part, stay under the radar. And it's only after they do crazy things that everyone comes forward and says, oh, well, he tortured kittens or something like that. Well, you know, h- how do you know that ahead of time? We just don't know. Uh, so I don't think, well, hopefully we won't get gun control. But I think Justin Trudeau is showing us one thing. It's very difficult to have a compromise with people that at the end of the day, they really do want to ban private possession of guns. I think that makes it very difficult for for Republicans to compromise because people like Chris Murphy are radicals on this issue. They don't believe in the Second Amendment. They don't believe in self-defense. They want us all to just rely on cops. And of course, what did we talk about earlier in the program? You can't trust and rely on the government to protect you when push comes to shove.
0: James Rosen, you've been listening to our two other panelists who seem to think that Canada is on the wrong track here. What's your view?
1: Well, I think Daniel just made a good point, which is that um, um, you know the the abysmal, catastrophic response of the police in Uvalde makes it hard to argue that you know only police should have guns. I mean, that, and that's I think that's a tragedy. However, as much as I respect my friends uh, Daniel Mitchell and Brian McNichol, I have to respond to some of the things they said. I, I thought, with all due respect, uh, there was they were at times incredibly glib. And um, and unfair in the way they stated um, uh, you know some of the some of the uh, cases Prime Minister Trudeau to accuse him of politics um, you know anything you do can be called politics uh, but that's basically uh, no no good faith assuming he has no sincere motives I think that's unfair um, Daniel said uh, that it's hypocritical for Trudeau to want to take away guns when. Uh, from law-abiding citizens when he's protected by guns, but that's precisely the point. The, I mean, the Uvalde police aside, uh, the, the people who protect Trudeau, who protect President Biden, who protect these heads of states are the best shooters in the world. They're the most highly trained uh, shooters in the world. You can't compare them to you know, so-called law-abiding citizens having guns. So that's a very weak argument, and it's not hypocritical, and it's not illogical. Um, Brian's comment about leftist gun grabbing measures, again, that's, you know, for something this serious and after a tragedy of this uh, extent, I think it's really too glib, Brian, to use that kind of language. And the last thing I'll talk about is Australia. Um, I think it was Daniel mentioned that it was only 20% effective. First of all, if you have millions and millions and millions of guns like we do in the United States, Twenty percent effective would be damn effective. It's, it would be a huge number. And the second thing is, is what I read about Australia is they collected six hundred and fifty thousand guns. I think I've got that number right. And immediately, immediately, violent gun gun uh, deaths and crimes dropped precipitously.
3: Well, if I if I can jump in on some of the evidence here, in both the United States and Australia, because of demographic factors, fewer you know, young men between 18 and 30, you know, know, we're the idiots in our younger years who tend to cause problems. But because of a decline in the relative population of young men in both Australia and the US, crime rates, murder rates, violent crime rates have all been dropping. Now in the United States, that drop in crime has been at the same time that we've had an explosion in gun ownership. Well, the fact that it happened in Australia when there was some level of decline in some of these weapons, Writers for even left-leaning outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post, when they've written about what happened in Australia, they basically admit that there's no evidence, no statistical proof uh, that the gun buyback actually had any effect on crime rates. Well, in part because, of course, they don't have mass shootings like we do. They had that one in Tasmania many years ago. But other than that, they just don't have the kind of data that unfortunately characterizes the U.S. with these copycat lunatics.
0: Let's move on to a a no less serious topic, because also this week, the Biden administration has agreed to Ukraine's request for advanced rocket systems to use against Russian forces. And here's more from CBS News. The aid package for Ukraine crucially includes four high-mobility artillery rocket systems, which can hit
1: targets up to 50 miles away. That's more than double the range of the American-supplied howitzer, which this Ukrainian commander told us was a game-changer. President Biden said the U.S. is, quote, not enabling Ukraine to strike beyond its borders over fears Kyiv could launch long-range weapons into Russian territory. Senior Ukrainian officials have promised they won't, but the country is suffering heavy losses. Between 60 and 100 soldiers are killed every day
0: and up to 500 are wounded. So James Rosen, do you think this is a smart move, adapting to what Ukraine needs in this phase of the war? Or is there a danger here that the US is getting sucked into potentially another forever conflict?
1: Oh, that danger is Absolutely there. I mean, you know, I'm not sure I would use the word sucked into. We are getting inexorably drawn into this conflict, Uh, but it was kind of predictable from day one, um, uh, given how brutal uh, the Russian invasion and bombing and killing, you talk about law-abiding citizens, uh, has been since February 24th when when the invasion began. Uh, We're getting drawn into this uh it's 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 like world war ii on warp speed everything happens much faster now because of technology we you know when when uh when there's a bombing and you know dozens of people are killed we know about it that night le- during world war ii it would take days or weeks for that news to filter out but we're getting uh we're getting drawn into this and um you know i think there's i think when uh, president biden gave a uh, uh, was it President Biden gave his State of the Union address? Um, the only thing that got the only the only topic that Republicans stood and applauded for was aid to Ukraine. You know, in a, in a in an uh, unbelievably polarized um, environment, this is one of the very few um, issues that has wide bi- uh, bipartisan support. This gives
4: uh, this is an important. Uh... Step up in our involvement in this because it gives the Ukrainians the capability of attacking Russian territory with uh, with these weapons. So you know if they start shooting into Russia, then Russia you know starts imagining itself to have ver- uh, justifications to do all kind of other stuff. Um, Putin was talking the other day about the the size and scope of his nuclear capability. You know like. <laughs> refreshing our memories on what he's capable of and so forth. So, you know, I I wouldn't uh, put it past him to do that. Uh, You know, I I think it's something else we looked at.
0: Yeah. And and on that point, Brian, about potentially being able to attack inside Russia, the Ukrainians have apparently promised the Biden administration uh, all the way up to President Zelensky, I believe, uh, making the commitment that they won't be used to target Russian territory. What do you make of that?
4: Well, I mean, you know, you say that, you know, what is what is Russian territory? Right. So because like the Russians, they would now call Mirapol, They would now call, you know, a lot of the Donetsk Russian territory. So, you know, you know, that that line is moving and was never really well defined. So, you know, I, you know, I, that's that to me is sort of the danger that could end up making it a wider war. But, you know. Maybe that's uh, what you want, maybe because otherwise, as like you were talking about earlier, it's, it has the chance to be a quagmire that, that we're involved in for a long time. But, you know, even if that were the case, you know, we can stand to be tangentially third hand involved in this war indefinitely a lot more than the Russians can stand to be primarily involved in this war and for a lot longer.
0: Okay. And Daniel Mitchell, just to provide a bit more context on this, I believe the US has not supplied the Ukrainians with the uh, the ammunition that has the furthest range for this particular rocket system. In fact, restricting them to, to a range of just inside 50 miles, I believe, a sort of medium range ammunition here. So that's the context. How do you feel about that weapon system being sent to Ukraine. And in fact, I believe it was also actually, they had already sent it to Europe in advance of the decision. So it could be there in days.
3: Putin is the bad guy and it's obviously in America's interest to try to make uh, Putin suffer for his aggression, not only because we want Putin to suffer, but we're also sending a signal to China. Uh, hopefully, they'll be less likely to invade Taiwan, uh, given not only the US response, but the world response uh, to Putin's uh, attack on Ukraine. Now, we're obviously doing a dance here. We're trying to give Ukraine as much help as possible without triggering some lunatic move on the part of Putin to bring chemical weapons or nuclear weapons or biological weapons uh, onto the battlefield here. Uh, Unfortunately, it does seem in the last week or so, the news has gotten a little bit more grim. Russia just has more soldiers, more artillery, more weapons, and they are beginning to grind down and wear down the Ukrainian resistance. Now, some people say, well, we should just encourage Ukraine to surrender. Uh, that will reduce uh, the amount of death in the long run, but you know, who wants to live as slaves uh, in, a, in a corrupt Russian uh, state? I mean, not like Ukraine was a, a, a pristine, well-run Western European country, but at least they had some self-determination and some hope that they could fix their problems. If they get sort of subsumed into uh, Russia, uh, or at least you know, part or all the country, there's pretty much no hope of good things ever happening, uh, at least until well after Putin is dead. Uh, so yes, it's, America should help Ukraine. Doesn't mean we give them a blank check. Doesn't mean we subsidize their bad economic policy. Doesn't mean that we pay for their bureaucrats and things like that. But military help, I think, given the geopolitical uh, situation, not only with Putin, but also with Xi and China, I think is in America's self-interest.
0: Okay, well, thank you all for your thoughts on that. Let's move on now to take some questions from our viewers and listeners. And we'll start with one from Bernard Cook, uh, who asks, and this goes back to uh, our second topic, I guess. He asks, Do you think gun buyback programs are effective? Now, Daniel, I know you've said quite a bit on that on the Australian experience. So, James Rosen, do you want to pick that one up from there?
1: In America, we don't know because we've never tried it. So I think, you know, it would just be pure speculation, but my feeling, we is love pure speculation, some, some, some st- statistics that we have not talked about is that the vast majority of guns are used, um, not to kill by a, a citizens, private citizens are used not to kill strangers breaking into their homes or trying to commit other crimes, but they're used on people. They know they're used in domestic disputes. They're used, um, it, you know, within families, the, the vast majority of shootings. And that's, I think that's probably the most compelling reason for uh, a gun buyback, um, um, a gun buyback program, because guns in America, the, the, which has, um, you know, by many magnitudes, more guns than any other country even on a per capita basis, they're not even being used by law abiding private citizens for what those citizens claim they want them to be used, which is to protect themselves and to, and to, uh, you know, and to kill bad guys. They're being used instead to kill family members, friends, and relatives. And so I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's something astounding. It's, it's something like 90% of all shootings, um, fatal shootings, are of people that are known to the shooter.
0: And sadly, I suspect that suicides probably make up a, so, a, yeah, quite suicide, quite, yeah. quite a large uh, a portion of that. Uh, Brian McNichol, gun buyback programs, your thoughts?
4: Um, I, I don't think the government needs to be buying people's guns. I think that people need to be uh, uh, using their guns right now for self-defense. And I think that, um, you know, I think it's something like they, they, there's a uh, 77 times guns are used to preserve life and property for every time they're used to take it, something like that. Um, uh, the John Lott statistic, Dan, you may know better than me, um, but they uh, I, I, I think that that get it, get government out of messing with this. I don't think government's involvement has helped at all.
1: Brian, just quickly, 77 figure. That's got to include police officers. There's, that can't possibly be anything close to a true statistic if we're if we take police officers out of the mix. That it's just apocryphal on the face.
4: I mean, there's not that many. You're not talking about that many of them anyway. You're talking about, you know, seven or eight thousand or something like that in the whole country for a year.
0: Uh, yeah, compared to the death figures, which I'm not sure where they are, but I imagine it's higher than that. Uh, Daniel Mitchell, did you want to? add anything based on what our other panelists have said tonight?
3: Uh, I'm not familiar with the data that Brian was talking about, but I know that there is a, there are a very high degree of a, a, a very high set of numbers of people brandishing weapons to deter criminals. Uh, you know, So they never have to kill the criminal. They never have to shoot at the criminal. Uh, but they do, in effect, frighten the criminal away. Uh, and that's part of what uh, I think is part of our constitutional right. You should have the freedom and the liberty to protect yourself. Uh, The cops aren't gonna be there. The cops might not be competent. Uh, When push comes to shove, you're responsible for your own life. I have one amusing anecdote about gun buybacks. The city of Baltimore a few years ago uh, wanted to do a buyback of so-called high capacity magazines. They were offering $25 for every empty magazine well, it turns out you can go online and buy them for about $10, $11. Uh, so I actually wrote a column saying, hey, here's a profit-making opportunity uh, for people in Baltimore because the stupid politicians uh, who don't know anything about guns, know nothing about self-defense, but you know, just like Justin Trudeau, they want empty headlines and political posturing. They gave gun owners a good opportunity to make a profit, and I hope a lot of them took advantage of it.
0: It's time now for our regular segment where our guests tell us what they believe the most underreported story of the week is. Who wants to go first? Brian, you're ready. I can see okay. it. Um, <laughs> no, the, you're uh, all so polite. No one ever wants to jump in first. <laughs> Brian, go ahead.
4: Michael, uh, Michael Sussman, who was on trial for uh, lying to the FBI about uh, uh, where he got information that he gave them about Donald Trump and involvement with Russia. Uh, he was a lawyer who worked with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, the uh, kind of strange situation with the jury—they—they they allowed some people who—who who, uh, were Hillary supporters, who were uh, one of them was an AOC donor, um, uh, who, you know—who were told them that they were politically inclined against them, in, you know, in what was a, a, a trial over a political matter, uh, the, the prosecution did not use all its preemptive strikes. Let these people on the jury. And they went away saying not, you know, that the guy was not guilty, but that this was not the kind of case they should have been, that should have been brought, which strikes me as a as a political conclusion. Um, you know, those streets are not dangerous because Michael Sussman is still allowed to walk them. Uh, two things did come out of that trial, though. Uh, Hillary Clinton did, was named by her own campaign manager, testified under oath that she was the one who, uh, that she personally okayed uh, going after Trump with this Trump Russia narrative, even though they know they knew it probably there was that none of it was true. Um, and the other thing that came out of it is the FBI senior leadership, James Comey, et cetera, uh, insisted on uh, the this to be investigated uh, by line agents, um, even though they the line agents said, hey, we're not finding any the evidence. They said, we, you know you keep investigating anyway and they knew that they wouldn't find evidence and didn't tell them, kept it from them. These these both came out of this trial. So while the trial itself did not result in a conviction, information that comes from it does strengthen the Trump's case that he was spied on and that this was a a, a conspiracy against him that went to the highest levels of government.
0: Okay, James Rosen, what's your underreported story this week? For the first
1: time, maybe ever, uh, in the history of California, California's population decreased in 2021. Uh, it only decreased by 117,000 plus people, but it still went down. I don't believe in the history of our country that's ever happened before with California, um, which of course has been a mecca for 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 you know what 1849 Gold Rush for 170 years for people to come to. Uh, so the population went down. But uh, one particular population is going up, which is rattlesnakes. Um, and I can say that I lived in California for eight years. As I said, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I never, the thought of a rattlesnake never entered my mind, but the uh, rattlesnake population is growing and uh, experts attribute it to climate change, which is making the temperature warmer and the ground warmer and, and rattlesnakes, of course, like, like heat.
0: Okay, well, uh, all I know is that more rattlesnakes would make me much more likely to leave California too. Uh, didn't didn't think we'd end up talking about rattlesnakes today, but here we are. That's why I love this segment, Daniel Mitchell. Not the only thing it could get me to run, <laughs> Daniel Mitchell. Why uh, why don't you tell us your uh, underreported story this week?
3: Well, I'd be more likely to leave California because of the taxes uh, rather than the snakes. But, uh, I knew you know, someone you was going to go around, there. Uh, uh, and has pet snakes. And actually, thinking of California, the, the interesting news coming out of the so-called Golden State is that they recent, the government recently classified bees as fish uh, in order to get them covered by the Endangered Species Act, which is a very creative bit of uh, bureaucratic uh, ledger main there. But my underreported story of the week deals with something that just came out today. So maybe it'll get coverage tomorrow, but I doubt it which is the fact that the Social Security's new trustees report shows that between now and the year 2100, the deficit in the social security system adjusted for inflation between now and 2100 will be $56 trillion. That's something to think about every time we see politicians kicking the can down the road, not dealing with entitlements, not reforming social security. Heck, I mean, Politicians like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren want to expand Social Security and drive us into a Greek fiscal crisis even faster. That trustees report should be a wake-up call. But then again, I say the same thing every year. The numbers are there. We see there's a long-run crisis. It's a slow-motion train wreck. And yet, if anything, the politicians want to make it worse, not better.
0: Okay, well, thank you all for that especially with our rattlesnakes and bees as fish. I think it's definitely time to end our program for this week uh, because that is all we have time for. And I want to thank our guests, James Rosen, Brian McNichol, Daniel Mitchell and his cat. If you missed that, if you're listening on the podcast, get over to the YouTube channel there to get a look at Daniel's lovely cat. Uh, but thank you all very much for watching. I'm Adam Biern Please subscribe to our channel and like this video if you're watching on there or uh, give it a five-star rating on your podcast platform. This is The Square Circle. We'll see you next week.